I'd like for you to, to listen, listen to these words, uh, but, but I don't want you to just hear them with your ears. I want you to try to hear them with your heart. L- listen, listen to the attitude that you, that you feel that's coming out of these words. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but, not un- but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Did you hear that attitude? It is is an arrogant attitude. It is an attitude that I don't need anything outside of myself. I am sufficient in myself to take care of everything that I need. I don't need any God in my life. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Could you imagine when a nation takes on that attitude? This was the attitude of the nation of Israel during Jeremiah's time. This is how they thought. We don't need you, God. We're okay. We're self-sufficient. In fact, if you just stayed out of our lives, we'd be really happy about that. We don't need you, God. We have grown arrogant in our success. And as, by the way, just leave us alone. That is the attitude of America today. We have forgotten how we started at a nation. We have forgotten how well we started with our founders wanting to honor God. Even the first ones coming to these shores wanted to honor God and to set him up as the supreme sovereign ruler of the world where all nations are subject to him. But we have forgotten that in America. We have grown arrogant, self-sufficient. Israel was in the exact same state in Jeremiah's day. It is clear that the success of every nation is dependent upon submitting to the sovereignty of God and his will. Not just Israel, but any nation on the face of the earth. If the nation is to be successful, it's dependent upon the sovereignty of God of submitting to it and doing what his will is in this world. What happened to Israel? I mean, think about when they started, God selected this man, Abraham, called him out to go to a land and said, of you, I'm going to make a great nation. And I'm going to bless all of the world because of you. And of course, then they go off into to Egyptian captivity for a period of time. But God redeems them, brings them out, makes a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. He says, you're my nation to be representatives to the world. He blesses them with his presence, the pillar of fire at night, the cloud during the daytime, knowing that God is there with his nation. They're following. They, don't, they have missteps, Sure. But by and large, they say, yeah, you're my God. And yes, we're going to follow you. We're going to do, we're going to submit to you and do your will. What happened to them to get to, to Jeremiah's day? Hundreds, hundreds of years later, how did they get to this state? Jeremiah is going to use an, actually God's going to use the analogy. He's going to tell a story. He's going to go down to the potter's house. He's going to view something. And from that viewing, that analogy, God's going to speak to Jeremiah, the prophet, the importance of a nation submitting to the will of God. It was probably, this was written during a time of the king called Jehoiakim. 
Now let me tell you about him a little bit, just briefly what the scriptures describe him out in 2 Chronicles 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, I've told you before, when the head is sick, the body is sick. The head of the nation was sick. All he wanted to do was evil. As a matter of fact, God took him off into captivity early because all he wanted to do was evil. The head was sick. The body is sick. So God says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to use the, the potter as a metaphor. So here we go. Chapter 18, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So God is speaking to him, told him to do something. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. So he has to go down to the potter's house, which is at the lower end of the city. He would go down, literally, to the potter's house, and he would then hear the word of the Lord. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. And you know, you can imagine the wheel at the bottom and the thing at the top and he's shaping the clay. You can picture it. You got the idea. He was working at his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled. It was ruined in the potter's hand. It wasn't the potter's fault. There was something wrong with the clay. Maybe there was a dry spot in the clay. Maybe it was in, 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 uh, in perfect material, but something was wrong with the clay, not the potter. And he reworked it, that which was spoiled, he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. So you can imagine this analogy is describing man or a nation as the clay and God as the potter shaping a man or shaping a nation. In this case, it's the nation of Israel. So we get the kind of picture that's going on here. Notice that God didn't give up with the, with, with the nation when it failed him. He reshaped it. He reworked it. He didn't cast it aside and say, oh, I'm done with you, clay. I'll just find another group of clay. That's not what he did. He didn't do that to Israel. He reshaped her, even though she had ruined herself by her actions. So God has the sovereign right to do as he wills with his creation. The sovereign right to do according to his will with all nations, not just with Israel, but with all nations. Epi Huey wrote, by observing the potter at work, Jeremiah was reminded about the sovereignty of God. Like the potter who determines the shape the clay will take, God as creator has the same, that same authority over every nation and every person. So if something is ruined or marred, he can rework it if he chooses to do. That's what he can do. He has a sovereign right to do that. And the ruin of the vessel wasn't God's fault. It was Israel's fault. Israel had corrupted herself. Israel had ruined herself. It wasn't God. It was nothing wrong with the potter, but the clay. Something was wrong with the clay. As the quality of the clay limits what the potter can do with it, so the quality of a nation limits what God will do with it. What is the essence of that nation? Is that nation desiring to honor God with its actions, with its leadership, with its citizens, the desire to, to do what God wills in this world? Or does the nation want to do whatever it wants to do in a rebellious attitude? All nations are subject to God who directs their history as he wills. He has the sovereign right to determine, to raise up one nation and to tear one nation down. He alone knows what is right and good and just in this world. Psalm 115 says, why should the nation say, where is their God? In other words, 
Well, we'll tell you where our God is. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He has a sovereign right to choose what he wants to do with any nation on the face of this earth. Nations have failed to fulfill the purposes of God because they refuse to let him have his way with them. It's exactly what was wrong with Israel. Israel said, now God, we got this. We don't need you anymore. We're self-sufficient. We have grown arrogant. Now they wouldn't say that in our luxurious lifestyle. We don't need you anymore, God. You're not important. You don't, you don't get your way with us. We are the masters of our faith, the captains of our own soul. But God never changes his character or his nature. What is interesting though, when someone changes their response to God, often God relents of what he says he's going to do to them. Look at here in verse number five. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Okay, and so God's speaking to him again. O house of Israel, now he's speaking to the nation. Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, now this is more than just Israel. This is talking about all the nations of the world. Okay, so not just Israel in verse number seven, any nation. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. See, God's nature doesn't change, but their response changes his response to them. Verse nine, and if any, and if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you. I thought God was only good. He is. I'm shaping a disaster against you and devising a plan against you. So what should they do? Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So he's laying out this idea is that when a nation gets to the point where it no longer is honoring God, it needs to repent. It needs to come back to the beginning where it started, when it started well, like the nation of Israel. Repent. See, God has a right to change his response concerning a nation in response to their behavior. He himself doesn't change. He's unchangeable. But when he puts out to a nation and they respond back to him correctly, he can relent of what he was going to do. That's part of his character as well. He always, God always acts in consistency with his nature and his character. It's not that God changes. His response to us changes based on our response to him is how it works. But we live, you and I live in an age of individual autonomy and the teaching about God's sovereignty, what God is sovereign over me, oh, has been eclipsed. It's completely shaded by the arrogance of man. God is not sovereign over me. I think even sometimes us Christians have a hard time with this idea of sovereignty, that God can do as he wills in this world. We don't have to ask, we don't say, hey God, what is going on? God is going to do according to his plan in this world. R.C. Sproul said on the sovereignty of God, he said, I have never in my life met a Christian who said that he did not believe that God is sovereign. But as soon as we probe the understanding of sovereignty, it takes about five minutes to realize that the way many Christians define sovereignty could be better described as non-sovereignty. 
A God who is like the King of England who reigns but does not rule. Now, listen, you and I, we know we have chafed under the sovereignty of God because you and I tend to be rebellious sometimes. We understand that. But God is sovereign. He chooses what he gets to do to nations because he has a divine plan in history and he will fulfill his plan. But he said clearly here, if any nation turns, repents of its evil, God will alter his response to that nation. You say, has it happened before? Yes, it has. Thanks for asking. It happened to Nineveh in the book of Jonah, remember? Let me read it to you. Jonah chapter three. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Remember, Jonah is sent by God. He runs away. We know the story. He runs away, gets on a ship, thrown in the ocean, swallowed by the, the great fish, puked up, literally vomited up on the land. Really? Vomited up on the land. Goes into the city, proclaims God's going to destroy this place and goes, sits out and waits for God to destroy it. Okay? Now, we know he didn't have a right attitude. We got that. But anyway, this is what happens. The word reached the king of Nineveh, what Jonah had said. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance, mourning, and sat in ashes. Again, another sign of repentance. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. So from the head on down, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So he, he as the head of the nation repents and calls on the whole nation to repent, a national repentance. So what happened? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. If any nation turns from their wicked way, their evil way, and begs God for mercy. God can relent of his disaster that he's going to pour out on that nation. It happened to Nineveh. It can happen to other nations as well. See, when a nation repent, God acts immediately to that repentance. Joel chapter two, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, just don't show an outward sign of repentance. Show it a true inward repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So the proper response of a nation who is no longer honoring God is to repent and to beg God for his mercy to be poured out so his judgment doesn't come, that he relents. The change is not in God himself, for he's unchangeable, but in the circumstance which controls God's dealings with nations or individuals. He doesn't change, but his response is based upon our response. Nineveh repented. God relented of a disaster he promised against them. He says, and this is hard, I'm shaping a disaster against you. That was his nation. I'm shaping a, it's actually the verb form of the noun form, of the idea of a potter. So he's shaping it. So God had warned Israel that he was shaping a disaster for them. Think about that. These are his people, his nation. I'm bringing a disaster. I'm shaping it. I'm forming it. It's coming after. It's coming your way. A disaster is coming to my nation. His own nation. Listen, if God shaped a disaster against his own nation, 
Why would we in America think that it wouldn't bring disaster to us? How arrogant can we be as a nation to think, oh, we don't need God. We cast off his chains. We don't have him in our life at all. We are self-sufficient. How arrogant can a nation become and think that God will not bring disaster to them? What's wrong with us in America? Now, I'm not talking to you. You get it. I'm talking about us as Americans in this nation. You understand this, but we're part of this nation. This nation has forgotten God. Look around us. We can see that disaster is being fashioned right now in this nation. It is a dangerous time. There are enemies about and within that want to cause harm to this nation. And only a radical change in the heart of Israel could avert that disaster that was coming to them. They needed to change. They needed to repent. They needed to turn to God to acknowledge him as a sovereign ruler over all nations and to submit to his will. But what do they do? Look at verse 12. So after all that Jeremiah says to them, look what they say to him back in verse number 12. But they say, that's the nation. That is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Thanks God, but no thanks. We got this. We don't need you. We're going to do everything we want to do according to the stubbornness of our own heart. Thanks, but no thanks God. Take a walk. Israel's answer to the mercy of God condemns them out of their own mouths. God is extending mercy to them. God is saying, listen, repent that I'm a relent of the disaster that's coming your way. And Israel say, nah, we don't need you, God. We're going to do our own thing. See, repentance would reshape their destiny, but they refused it. They said, no, their whole destiny as a nation could have been reshaped by a national repentance to change everything, the way they related to God as a nation. The response of the nation to the mercy of God was that Jeremiah should not waste his time any longer talking to them. It's all in vain. It's empty. Doesn't mean anything to us, Jeremiah. Thanks, but no thanks. Tell God, nah, we got this covered. But they decided to follow their own plans and stubbornly do whatever their rebellious hearts wanted to do. It just shows us. Left unchecked, stubbornness becomes a way of life hostile to God. They wanted nothing to do. And no, thanks God. We, we don't need your mercy. We don't need your mercy because there's nothing wrong with us, God. We've got this under control. We're doing our own thing, God. Thanks, but no thanks. But left unchecked, stubbornness becomes a way of life hostile to God. What Israel needed to do, the appropriate action was to repent, the text tells us to turn from their evil ways, to repent that God would relent of the disaster that he's forming against them. And I say to all of us, repentance today can reshape America's destiny. If we as a nation repent of our sins to God, of our evil ways, of our stubborn hearts, of our rebellious attitude, of not needing the sovereign guard in our nation any longer. Now, what I'm going to say, I fully acknowledge, and I need to say up front, God did not choose America like he chose Israel as a nation and made a covenant with her. He did not do that. I understand that. And so up front, I'm not saying there's any comparison there. I'm only saying we're told in Proverbs 14 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So what I'm saying to you that our founders, the people that came to these shores that established what we know as America from the beginning desired to honor God. 
they wanted to honor God, not only in the political system, but in the system of the life of the society of the nation. Their desire was to honor God. And we know when we honor God, God honors us. Righteousness exalts a nation. Even the first ones coming over on the Mayflower, which was, by the way, a church relocation. Think about it. They went from England to Holland then to America, and they brought... Let me just read to you what they said, why they came to these shores. Mayflower Compact, 1620. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, Ireland, Kingdom. You know, that's kind of what you have to say, all right? Okay. But why did they come? Having undertaken for the glory of God. We want to honor God and advancements of the Christian faith. We want to bring Christianity, the truth of Jesus Christ, to the nation. And the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Our nation started so well. We started with a desire to honor God, not only in the political system, but in society as well. Our founding fathers were well aware of the providential of hand of God moving to establish this nation. They talked about it over and over again in their writings. They talked about they knew that God was involved in founding this nation. Again, not like Israel where he chooses them and makes a covenant, but in the fact that this nation desired to honor God at its beginning. Look what John Adams said. We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. Do you think maybe they wanted to honor God? He also wrote, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. In other words, bringing the the teachings of Christ into society. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. Do you think maybe they wanted to honor God in founding this nation? Look at Samuel Adams. We have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. They wanted to honor God in the founding of this nation. John Quincy Adams, the highest glory of the American revolution was this. It connected in one indissolvable bond, the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. You form a government based upon the principles that we find in the word of God. They wanted to honor God by founding this nation. Noah Webster, the Christian religion in its purity is the basis or rather the source of all genuine freedom in government. And I am persuaded that no civil government of a, of a Republican form can exist and be durable in which the principles of that religion, which is Christianity, have not a controlling influence. Do you think they wanted God in our, in our society? Yeah, He said also, no truth is more evident to my mind than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. They wanted to honor God in the founding of this nation. Joseph's story. I verily believe Christianity necessary to the support of civil society. In other words, you can't have a civil society without the principles of Christianity being lived out. Makes sense. One of the beautiful boasts of our municipal jurisprudence is that Christianity is a part of the common law. There has never been a period in which the common law did not recognize Christianity as laying its foundations. They wanted to honor God in founding this nation. Jedediah Morse, to the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. 
whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present Republican form of government and all its blessings shall flow, which flow from them must fall with them. See, what they wanted, they wanted to bring God into this government, God into this society, and they wanted to honor God. Again, they're not na- we're not a nation of Israel. I understand that. But our founders, the ones from the very beginning, said we want to honor God, and God honors those who honor him. I don't have time to go through it, but look up the, the, the divine interventions in U.S. history in the founding of our government. Whether it's George Washington having two horses shot out from underneath him and four bullet holes going through his cape, but not one touching him. Or a sudden fog that, that hid the, the, the ships carrying the whole continental army across a river to escape the British who had surrounded them. Oh, this fog just happened. It just happened. And then, and then there was a tornado in Washington, D.C. in 1812. There's only been seven total tornadoes in the history of Washington, D.C. But on that day when the British tried to burn down Washington, D.C., rain and a tornado came to Washington, D.C. <laughs> there was a phrase in the 1840s that was all over Europe. It said, a special providence watches over children, drunkards, and the United States. <laughs> Now, is, is undoubtedly meant to be derogatory. I got that. But even the other nations recognize God's doing something with that nation. God's doing something with that nation. God oversees this nation that we call America. He's doing something with them. Even the other nations recognized it. In reviewing the events of the first years of the Revolutionary War, George Washington wrote in 1778, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this. In other words, we've seen God's hand that he must, that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. God was part of what was going on in founding this nation. Washington also said, in no instance since the commencement of the war has the interposition of providence appeared more conspicuous than in the rescue of the post and garrison of West Point from Benedict Arnold's villainous perfidy. The providential train of circumstance which led to it affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of divine protection. They recognized it. They saw it. Also, James Madison wrote, it is impossible for the man of pious reflection not to perceive in it, that's a, con- a constitutional convention, a finger of that almighty hand. They saw God in the founding of this nation. Benjamin Franklin wrote, our general convention, when it formed the new federal constitution, was influenced, guided, and governed by that omnipotent and beneficent ruler in whom all live and move and have their being. Do you think they wanted to honor God with this nation? yes. They wanted to set up a nation that honored God in its practices, in its principles, whether it's political or civil. George Washington said again, should everything proceed as we anticipate, it will be so much beyond anything we had right to imagine or expect 18 months ago that it will demonstrate the finger of providence in human affairs greater than any event in history. They understood God was part of the founding of this nation. Why? Because they wanted to honor God. God honors those who honor him. John Hancock said, let us humbly commit our righteous cause to the great Lord of the universe. Let us joyfully leave our concerns in the hands of him who raises up and puts down the empires and kingdoms of the earth as he pleases. He understood exactly Jeremiah, didn't he? 
Or George Washington in his first inaugural address, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. They recognized it. They sought, why? Because they attempted to establish a nation that honored God. Even Benjamin Franklin, the least of the religious people of the founding fathers, certainly not a deist. He believed God intercede. In fact, he called for prayer in the Continental Convention so that people would recognize God. In fact, he said, we have been assured, sir, in the most sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. They needed God. They wanted God to be part of this nation. They honored God in setting up this nation. But we have forgotten God. Look around us. Our political parties are corrupt. R, D, I, whatever. They're all corrupt. Corrupt means they're no longer for the good. Our justice system is corrupt. We can look around and we can see a two-tiered system of justice in this nation. The elite seem to get out of all of the problems while us common people seem to have all of them. Our educational system is corrupt in this nation. We have schools promoting that which is contrary, which is an abomination to God and saying this is normal and good. Our ethics in this nation are corrupt. Look around us at all the things that we are doing in America that God specifically said are an abomination to him. And we gladly, not you, I understand, we're not, I understand that, but we're part of this nation and they gladly do it. We have forgotten God. Alexander Slutsyitsyn in an address to Templeton University said, and is called men have forgotten God. He was talking about what happened in Russia. How did the Russian revolution happen? Why did the nation fall to the communists? He said more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. We have forgotten him as a nation. We are no longer honoring him, lifting him up, calling him the sovereign king of the universe who directs nations on this earth. We have become arrogant and proud as if we deserve something by our own special powers. We have grown fat in our position in the world. Corrupt people representing America have actually dishonored America by their actions, making us often the bully in other nations. We are no longer humble. We no longer seek God's face or his will for our nation. We intend to follow our own stubborn hearts and rebellious attitudes. We need a national day of prayer and humiliation humiliation to humble ourselves. It happened once before there was a call from the Congress to the president to write a proclamation so that there would be a national day of prayer and humiliation, fasting and humiliation. And Abraham Lincoln did that in 1863. He's describing the nation in his day. Tell me if it doesn't sound like our nation. Now, no president talks like this today, by the way. No president talks like this. This is what he wrote. 
Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God, stop and point. No, no politician saying that today. No president's ever going to say anything like that. Authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations has, by a resolution, requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas is the duties of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And inasmuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. God have mercy on us is what he's saying. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then uh, rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings, no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. We must repent as a nation. We must call out to God and say, God, have mercy on this nation. We don't deserve his mercy. He may choose to, to shape a disaster towards us. He may choose to wipe, wipe this nation off the face of the earth, and it is sovereign will to do that. But I'm saying to us, let's call out to God for mercy. God, God, we need you. We need mercy. If not, we need to prepare for his judgment. And it will come. It's already being prepared now in our land. You and I, as the people of God, we must pursue, pursue righteousness and holiness as we live in this world. We don't need to add to the sins of the nation. And like Daniel in chapter nine of Daniel, Daniel himself was a great guy. We don't ever see him doing any sins. I, I know he sinned, he's a human, but, but he was always represented in scripture as a great guy. When he praised in chapter nine of Daniel, he says, we have sinned against you. He includes himself in that. So when we pray to God, God, we as a nation have sinned against you. Have mercy on us. Relent from the disaster that could be coming our way. And we beg him, we beg him, heal our nation, God. God have mercy. That's, who do we think we are as Americans? 
that God has no right to judge us and to punish this nation. We have forgotten God. God is under no obligation to America to maintain this nation. He can destroy us in an instant or he may pardon our sins and relent from the disaster that's coming our way. So I say this week, we beg this month, this year, we beg God for mercy to spare this nation because if this nation suffers, you and I who are part of this nation will suffer along with it. We need to beg God that he will relent of the disaster that's coming our way and have mercy on us or expect judgment. Father, our nation desired from the beginning to honor you. They wanted to honor you. They searched your word to figure out what is a good form of government. They searched your word to see how to make good laws that could promote Christianity in society. They wanted to honor you. We started off so well, Father. But like Abraham Lincoln said in 1863, we thought we did this all on our own wisdom and strength. We became arrogant. Just like Israel. They were arrogant. They didn't need you. Now this is all in vain, Jeremiah. Save your breath. We don't need what you have to say. We have done that as a nation too, Father. We have grown fat and lazy in our luxurious lifestyle. We we no longer acknowledge you as a sovereign Lord over our nation. The one who directs all nations for his glory. And we think that we have achieved this on our own. God, forgive us. God, have mercy on us. God, please. This nation desired to do the right thing at the beginning. And we have so failed. And here we stand today and we see the results. God, have mercy on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.